0: You're listening to the Midwest Marketing Orange Hour Podcast with your host, Brett Matice. All right, Ben, you are involved in a variety of things. Like, just, you got your hands in a lot of pots. Can you kind of tell people what's your main gig, what you, what you totally do, and then uh, some other the things that you really like to dabble in?
1: Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, as you mentioned, I, I do wear a number of hats around the area here. Uh, my main hat for for the Black Hills is I'm the executive director for Black Hills Forest Resource Association. We're a trade association that really advocates for sustainable forests and sustainable communities. Uh, I came to the Black Hills about six years ago after doing my graduate research out of CSU here in the Black Hills and uh, my, my field based research was looking at the forest here in the Black Hills and while I was living in the Black Hills during that time, I really fell in love with the communities and, and the forest and the people up here and uh, Following uh, my grad school, I stayed on with the university for a while, but really wanted to end up back in the Black Hills. So I'm I'm happy to have this opportunity and happy to be here today.
0: Yeah. So you said you went to CSU um, for our Way Out of Staters. That's Colorado State University. (laughs) Um, But you did all your like the research in the Black Hills, even though you were at CSU. Exactly. So how did that work? Did, Did that get randomly assigned to you or did you choose like I am interested in the forest in the Black Hills?
1: A little bit of both. You do have to follow the money as, as a graduate student. And, and where there's uh, funds to do work, you generally chase those funds. But th- this has been where my interest has, was always in, in school and, and looking at primarily disturbance-driven ecosystems like our Ponderosa Pine Forest here in the Black Hills. And uh, I sought out an advisor that specialized in that. And uh, there was some funding to do the work up here and, and it was a happy marriage.
0: Yeah. So we have a little bit of a, a different, you know, because we're kind of like an island out here with the with the Black Hills. How does our forest compare to maybe the forest of the mountain ranges in, in Boulder and, and all over Colorado, maybe Idaho, stuff like that?
1: Well, that's well, a that's a big range you, yes, you just yeah, discussed that's a there, and I'd, I'd say they're they're the same and very different all at all at once. Um, I'd break it down by the forest types that we have, and here in the Black Hills, when when we talk about the forest, we're really talking about ponderosa pine with, with a couple scattered uh, fingers of of spruce running through the hills here. Uh, when you look at the forests, uh, some of the lower elevations in, in Colorado and and a lot of Idaho, we're talking about ponderosa pine, but where our forests differ is is we don't have the same elevation that other states do, especially as you look across the Rockies. We, we just don't have the, the lodgepole pine, the, the mixed conifer, your spruce forests, uh, to any great extent here in, in the Black Hills, which um, presents some real opportunities for, for caring for the Black Hills because you're dealing with really one forest type.
0: Yeah, totally. So what are the other things outside of the Black Hills? Ooh, let me get forest research. Forest Resource Association. There you go. Um, outside of that, your main gig, what are some of the other things that you do here in the Black Hills?
1: Other things we do here in the Black Hills is as I'm part of the Black Hills Regional Multiple Use Coalition. Uh, that, that's a group of about 35 different organizations. I gotta
0: stop you. You may already be getting to it, but for those who don't know, uh, can you explain multiple use and what that means, that term?
1: Absolutely, and, and, and multiple use is one of the uh, guiding principles on public lands and that, that's the idea that public lands are not for one use. They're not just for recreation. They're not just for timber production. They're not just for setting aside as wilderness and preservation. It's it's a multiple-use forest, and and that's really what we operate here in the Black Hills as well. The Black Hills National Forest is very much a multiple-use forest. At any given time, you can go out and see all sorts of activities. There's, there's cattle in the trees. There's OHVs riding trails. There's log trucks going down the road, um, and, and the multiple use coalition really promotes that type of activity, that that type of, uh, of of mindset for our public lands here in the Black Hills region. And and the coalition is formed by most users of the forest. It includes. Cattle and timber and recreation, and even folks who just go out and, and collect minerals recreationally, uh, affectionately known as rock hounds. So there's, <laughs> there's a number of different groups involved there, and, and all of them come, on, come into the coalition with the same idea of promoting sustainable multiple use here in the Black Hills.
0: Uh, yeah, one thing, I just literally just last weekend I was out in the hills, and it was like a perfect example of, of multiple use where I was out and I was looking for wildlife. Um, So I, in the same span of two hours, I was looking over white-tailed deer, elk, couple mule deer, um, obviously your little critters that are running around. Then, I mean, within eye shot of me, I saw, like ATVs on an ATV trail. And then I saw a log truck doing, you know, logging work. So it's like that was a perfect example of multiple use. And you see it all the time in the Black Hills because, I mean, ATV trails are crazy popular and people love to recreate out in the Black Hills. But obviously, you have a lot of logging going on as well.
1: Excellent point. Yeah, and, and that's a very common sight here in the Black Hills and, and, and none of those activities, wildlife, recreation, OHV, logging, none of those are mutually exclusive of each other. They they oftentimes overlap very very often here in the Black Hills.
0: How often do you get complaints from one group of people and if you could spill the beans, who is the group of people that complain the most about oh the this like the hikers are like oh the atv trails are all over the place i hate them they're wrecking everything they're ruining the forest and then you got like the whoever people who are bashing on horseback riders who are like the horses rip up the trails and they mud bog everything well that's atvs are more mud bogging but do you have people that are like really against a certain group even though multiple use is obviously uh over encompassing Uh,
1: no i i I think that that Every group has things they desire, and from the Black Hills, they have things they would change. Um, by and large, most of the groups really get along. Um, the, the biggest thing the coalition has been involved in the last couple of years has been a campaign for uh, responsible OHV use here in the Black Hills. And, and as most folks know, the trails were closed earlier this year because of wet conditions, and that's been a problem for a few years running. And, and the multi Use Coalition really helped spur a, a campaign, a, a social media campaign to To help promote responsible use and OHV use here in the Black Hills, um, to to keep those to keep that opportunity going in the Black Hills. Um, but but I wouldn't put a finger on any one group. Um, again, like I say, everybody would have things a little bit different if if it was just them in the Black Hills. But but it's not. And, and everybody has to play in the same sandbox.
0: Yeah, that's one thing that I truly love. I mean, I spent a lot of time out on the public lands of all over America, and it's like, that's what makes America and public lands so great is that it's just everyone has their piece of the pie. It's everyone's land and everyone has, you know, equal right to use it as well as, you know, how they prefer to recreate on it. Um, but you mentioned when you are talking about uh, CSU, sustainable forest, what is a sustainable forest and what does that mean for like our Black Hills forest?
1: oftentimes when you look at sustainability, you have overlapping circles. You have your economic, you have your social and and environmental circles all overlapping to to create sustainability in in, in the center part of that. Um, When we talk about sustainable forests in the Black Hills, let's look at that kind of environmental or or forest part of that uh, sustainability circles here just for a minute. Um, And When we talk about sustainable forests that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people oftentimes ecologists and foresters will use the term hrv historical range of variants to to describe what a sustainable forest would be and and that really looks at what what the forests looked like and how they functioned pre-settlement but before people were here really uh, of settling you know we've always had indigenous peoples across the the americas um but it wasn't until um, folks came west and started settling areas that, that we started changing things a little bit. And, and that, that's fine to look at how conditions used to be. Um, and while they may have been sustainable when there wasn't any settlement, oftentimes those processes, when you talk about ponderosa pine forest and that would include fire, uh, don't work well with, with homes and, and communities throughout the forest. I use the same term, HRV, oftentimes when I talk about sustainable forests, but I, I use it in, as a healthy range of variation. And when we look back at uh, the Black Hills, we're very fortunate to have a, a, a long uh, archive of, of really forest conditions, starting with uh, the, the photograph from the Custer expedition in 1874. It tell us a lot about what the Black Hills looked like pre-settlement. And if anybody's ever seen those photos, they know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, I'd really recommend looking them up. Just, They're super interesting. Just, just I Google. saw them because yeah.
0: you sent them to me, and I was like, "You wouldn't, you wouldn't think, you wouldn't think it would look like that."
1: You wouldn't. And and um, for the folks who haven't seen them, there's there's not a lot of trees on the landscape, and and that's what a sustainable forest would look like to some folks here. Um, to, to me, I think we can do better, and and a, a healthy range of variation is somewhere between those historical forest conditions, and what we have today. Um, when, when we look at what drives those forest conditions and, and what would drive a loss in the forest, we're really talking about two two agents, and that's wildfires and mountain pine beetles here in the Black Hills as, as uh, the main ways that we would be looking at, at non-sustainable forest or having real forest loss here.
0: Yeah, so there's a in wildlife. I'm very familiar with wildlife and hunting. There's people always reminisce the good old days, man. I want to go back to the good old days, but in all aspects right now, we have more wildlife, healthier wildlife populations than ever. And it's like, so really we're in the good old days, but it's like this thing where the good old days, even if they weren't that great, it's like everyone thinks they're good and we should go back to how we did it back then. Is there like that train of thought in your world with, with forests and and management sustainability?
1: Well, a little bit and um it certainly depends on what wildlife you're you're looking at as far as oh, course, as far as yeah. populations um but uh, our, our forest conditions right now are are still about as dense as they've ever been in, in recorded history in, in the black hills here we, we've had some fluctuations recently but but nothing of significance and um that 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 drives impacts to a lot of wildlife here in the Black Hills, and. There is a lot of talk of, of good old days. It, you have to kind of frame that and say, well, what's what's old and what's good? Um, the times we're in aren't bad for, for some species, for, for some users of the forest. The forest is beautiful. There's a lot of trees out there, a lot of green trees. Um, other folks look at the forest and say, you know, this doesn't, when you have lots of trees, it doesn't produce the forage for, for a lot of different animals. It doesn't produce the stand conditions that different species need. And, and really, we, you know, we need a blend of, of all stand conditions, all, all forest densities across the Black Hills.
0: Absolutely. You uh, mentioned mountain pine beetle as, I mean wildfires and mountain pine beetle as the two driving forces behind like major losses of, of stands of timber. Um, for people that don't know, the pine beetle just absolutely came in and smoked us. When, what year was that when it was really just the epidemic levels of pine beetle?
1: We had a declared epidemic of, for mountain pine beetle from 1997 to 2017. What? Uh, exactly. Really? T- 20 years that it was declared at epidemic levels. Um, that's a long time. That's
0: a really long time. I thought it was like just one little short just burst where it just everyone was. Just, yeah. Wow, that's crazy.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, certainly some years saw more damage for mountain pine beetles than others. Um, as epidemics generally do, it started relatively small. Um, up uh, primarily in, in the Beaver Park Roadless area, and there was growing concern. But I'm not sure a lot of folks really envisioned it could get as bad as it did. Uh, as mountain pine beetle do, started small and and grew continuously. Um, that the, the forest conditions were, were really ripe for, for the for the epidemic. Um, all, all total, there was about 440,000 acres impacted here in the Black Hills, and and. I say impacted very intentionally because early efforts to map those those impacts from mountain pine beetles were efficient. They, they were essentially flying over at a high rate of speed, but but they were crude in, in the sense that if you had one or two trees that were dead from mountain pine beetles, that could account for acres in the results. Um, so it, it's a little unclear how many of those acres are really uh, you know mortality or, or, or real losses, but we do know from 2009 to 17 when when the mapping efforts were were greatly refined there there was about 120,000 acres of, of actual mortality across all ownerships here in the Black Hills so
0: that's including i mean cuz the Black Hills just the public national forest that's 1.2 million acres if i'm not mistaken or somewhere around that exactly. range yeah. and that but that includes private ownership all across the hills P- as well
1: private and state yes yeah, so all of that i
0: mean that's a big big chunk so there's this theory, not, not a theory, there's a misconception um, among a lot of people. And I had this as well, when you're just like talking to people, it's like, yeah, we had that pine beetle hit and then we had a cold winter and they're all, they're all dead. And for, I think, I would say 90% of people just walking around totally believe that's what went on. Can you please clarify that as it, like, opened my eyes when we've talked for the first time about the pine beetle situation? Sure. Um, so first up, I, I will say that,
1: that you know, I, I mentioned the epidemic ran from 97 to 2017. The, the most recent epidemic is declared over, um, but th- there wasn't one single event or, or change that, that really drove the ending. It was a number of things. Uh, unfortunately, one of them was not temperature. Uh, temperature was not part of the, the, those different uh, factors uh, to, to the end of the epidemic. And, and that's really because the, the mountain pine beetle is very good at what it does. And it spends very little time outside of trees. And, and as such, it's adapted over time to to, uh, to, to do very well in, under the bark of, of pine trees. And early in the winter, uh, typically around September, it, it starts flushing its fluids and replacing them with a glycol type substance, very, very similar to the antifreeze that that you would put in your car. And that allows them to withstand very cold temperatures for a very long time. Temperatures that we've really never seen here in the Black Hills, and and researchers from SDSU have done uh, extensive work looking at this through through time and and have really concluded that um, for the Black Hills temperatures and, and climate have, have never been part of the factor that drives mountain pine beetle epidemics. If you have an extended drought, you can certainly weaken some trees, um, but but that's not the main driver of the epidemic. The main driver is the, the forest conditions, and that that all relates back to their, the natural feedback ne- mechanisms of mountain pine beetles and and uh, again, if you think about those Custer photos where, where there just weren't very many trees on the landscape with a few dense patches here and there, um, that, that's how the mountain pine beetles adapted to, to work and, and to uh, work with nature and in in, through, through history, it's, uh, natural biology is to work in those small patches of dense trees, but, but not across the landscape. Um, what we've done is we've changed that landscape where now we have a forest of dense trees with a few open patches. And that allows the mountain pine beetle to work across much larger landscapes.
0: Yeah. So is the pine beetle, is that a native? Is it always been here? Or was, did it move in all of a sudden by its own? Did it get, you know, brought in with firewood? How did it get here?
1: I, I wish I could say it's an invasive and we should just go out and, and extirpate <laughs> it and, and be done with it. But, but it's a native. It, it, it's been here as long as we've had pine trees and it will always be here as long as we have pine trees. Uh, we don't really have a choice in it being in the Black Hills uh, We do have some choices it to what scale we see the mountain pine beetle functioning.
0: Yeah, so I'm from Minnesota originally and a couple of years back was the emerald ash borer was was a big thing when I was uh, probably in middle school What other I mean because they kind of work that same way as that uh, Pine beetle with just you know going through and just taking down a lot of trees. Is there any other beetles and stuff like that that just totally wipes out? Um, populations of trees
1: in the Black Hills, no. I, I, every tree has lots of things that would love to eat it. Um, here, here in the Black Hills with our ponderosa pine, the mountain pine beetle is, is really what we're talking about as far as any real threats from insects.
0: Okay, okay. So now switching over to wildfires, um, what are the conditions? Obviously right now we've had just so much water that the conditions aren't bad. But historically, is, is the Black Hills like a wildfire hotspot?
1: it it is historically um and most folks know you need it to be dry and reasonably warm to have a fire uh you can't burn wet firewood the same thing works for wet trees they just don't burn very well and wet grass alike um here in the black hills we it doesn't take a lot a lot uh looking at the yards around town to realize we've uh, we've had a lot of rain this year and the same in the forest the fire fire hazard uh, is not very high right now based on how dry the conditions are. But what we are really starting to grapple with is the effects of the mountain pine beetle epidemic. And and although the epidemic is over, it's left a separate epidemic of dead trees in its wake. And uh, I I often use the analogy of, of a campfire. And when you put a log on the campfire, you can get around it and uh, roast some s'mores or, or whatever else you like to do around the fire. But but if you take a whole pickup bed of, of wood and dump it on, it's pretty tough to cozy up to that fire. And and we're looking at the same scenario unfolding across the Black Hills where areas that were heavily impacted by mountain pine beetles, the, the trees are starting to fall. And even though they've lost their needles, you're still looking at a lot of potential for uh, high heat and what's called resonance time. Basically, the fire burns hot and for a long time where you have those those big logs on the ground. And in some places, there's a lot of them where, where they may be three, four, five feet deep where, where the mountain pine beetle was, was very active. Um, it, even though it's been wet this year, that, that's still a, a great concern because th- those logs don't go away anytime soon. That That long-term fire hazard is going to be something that we have to deal with in the Black Hills for the years to come. And uh, there are things that we can do to, to minimize our, our risk and, and, and hazards of fires. And, and so risk is the chances of getting a fire, which um, you can't control nature. You can certainly control, um, if we have a dry year, you can control campfires and things like that. Um, but, but the hazard is really what would fuel a fire across the landscape. And those are things that we can change, especially looking into the future. Uh, It's very difficult to go pick up those logs, but but we can make changes in in the long term.
0: Yeah. Can you talk about our history's kind of thought process on things where way back in time, to my understanding, it was like we did a lot of fire suppression where we are like, and we put it off so long trying to prevent these fires that then when it finally happened, it just went bad. Bonanza. I mean, just burned and burned and burned. Can you talk about like the thought process behind what they were thinking maybe back then that it would be good to totally just try to wipe fires off the map completely, and then how we kind of think about it nowadays?
1: Well, obviously, Smokey Bear has played a, a significant role in which in the it's past. a 75th birthday it, in a, August, I think. Yeah, is. and and um, I, I grew up with Smokey Bear, and and um, there's there's no way you want any fire in the forest. Um, We've learned a lot uh, since we started suppressing fires back in the early 1900s. And uh, we've learned that not all fires are bad, and and that includes the Black Hills. What's happened, though, is um, I mentioned that the Ponderosa Pine, our our forest type here, is is disturbance-driven. And that that really drives the natural ecology of, of these forests, wildfires and, and mountain pine beetles. But, but the scale of those disturbances and the severity of them in the past has been much smaller than what we see now. And that was largely because you just didn't have the, the miles and miles of, of dense forest to, to drive to, to carry those fires and beetles. By suppressing the fires, we, we've allowed additional trees to grow up underneath. We, we've allowed the forest to grow increasingly dense over time. And, and 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 we know this by looking back at surveys that have been done in the Black Hills since the 1800s and in looking at forest resources that are here, talking about how many trees are in the Black Hills. And and, and it's continually increased uh, for the last hundred years, largely owing to, to the fire suppression. And when when we talk about being disturbance driven, it really needs disturbance to, to function properly, to function as, as it has naturally and, and throughout history. Um, and when you, re- when you take away one of those disturbance agents, uh, you will quickly throw things out of, out, out of line unless you replace it with other, other sources of disturbance. And, and um, that, that's really where forest management comes in by trying to replace that disturbance that may not be as accepted across the landscape. Now with something that we can go in and do quite surgically and, and very environmentally friendly.
0: Yeah. So where is that fine line to walk between fire is a natural thing and we just, and then also, you know, kind of protecting our forests as well. Obviously how many, like what percent of fires are caused by humans?
1: Um, I forget the exact percentage, but but it's I know I put
0: you on the spot there. My bad.
1: <laughs> That's all right. There are numbers out there. I I, uh, I cannot remember the, remember those exact numbers, so I'm going to uh, stop short of citing anything specific. But but I it, it's lower than you would think, really. Like um,
0: lower than fifty percent.
1: Somewhere in there, yeah, uh, This is mid mid forties, I, I believe. But um, but. There's a lot of fires that are caused naturally. Here in the Black Hills, it's really lightning. We have storms roll through regularly, and um, you can sit out on a summer night and watch the lightning hitting the hills as it comes in. Um, And and that causes a lot of fires here in the Black Hills. Most of them remain very small. um, And and historically, some of those fires would have grown to a couple hundred acres or a thousand acres. Um, now there's a potential for them to grow very large if they're not continually suppressed. And, and they would threaten communities, much like the Grizzly Gulch fire of 2002 did with, with Deadwood. It burned right down to the edge of, of Deadwood and Lead, and um, had a lot of folks biting their fingernails during that one. And that, that's a great example of, of how a fire can, can get started and make a run very quickly, given the right envir- climatic and, and uh, forest conditions.
0: Yeah, totally. So there is, we got our pine beetles on our left hand, wildfires on our right. What are you guys doing right now to combat both of those issues, but in like a safe, practical manner?
1: Well, that's really where where the concept of forest management comes in. And um, you can do a lot of the same processes through through forest management to combat both of those uh, impacts. And mountain pine beetles and wildfires are both driven by the the, the forest conditions and namely we're talking about the density of the forest and ponderosa pine uh, Historically and naturally does not want to grow at high densities and and when you get fires and mountain pine beetles with dense forests that's when you really start talking about these extensive losses and we we need fire in this for, in, in in the Black Hills. It, it does a lot of, of benefit when it's burning in in forest types and stand conditions that that are suited for it. And namely, they've been thinned out, and that that's what forest management wants. To, it really aims to do is to come in and um, through, through an environmental and, and sustainable processes harvest some timber and and put that into service through through a number of different products from the Black Hills. Um, while leaving a very specific uh, prescribed stand condition behind. And those stand conditions are typically conducive to letting a fire burn through on, on the surface and the understory and, and not causing a lot of damage and not um, to taking off towards communities. It, the, the, those same stand conditions reduce the threat of mountain pine beetles. And again, you think back to how the mountain pine beetles work naturally, and they, they don't work in a thinned out stand. Um, we, we can't treat every acre, um, and in fact, um, depending on, on what type of treatments, we, we can generally treat about 30,000 acres a year in the Black Hills total um, out of those 1 1. 1.2 million, uh, 30,000 30, acres total, excuse me, um, out of uh, approximately 2 million forested acres in the Black Hills when you look at all of the ownership. So, Um, there's a lot of work to do out there on a yearly basis. And it's not all commercial harvest. It's not all big saw logs going to a sawmill. Some of it is is smaller trees and post and pole type of uh, material. And some of it is just non-commercial at all where you're talking about doing the role that that wildfires would have done historically and and weeding out some of of those small trees growing in the understory. And, And it's all work that really needs to be done to keep this ecosystem healthy.
0: Yeah, it's a, I think logging, like the logging industry, maybe above any other industry gets like, people don't realize the nuance in it. And I feel like you probably get a lot of people that are like, oh, they're just cutting down da 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 da. And I'm sure that happens all the time where they're not seeing the actual management and the scientific research that's done on what to cut and where to cut and why we're doing it. And I feel like you probably get a lot of just heat from people. Maybe not. Maybe people totally understand I'm way off base, but I feel like logging gets just hammered with, they don't know what they're doing. They're just cutting to cut and make money.
1: Well, really, when you look at the communities around the Black Hills, most folks understand what we're doing. Um, not everybody's a forester and may not understand exactly why we're doing that, but, but it is all science-based decisions. Um, th- there's, there's always a few folks who don't agree with that, and, and that's their own prerogative. Um, but um, by and large, people have seen forest management here in the Black Hills. They've seen, um, they've seen logging equipment in. They've seen what, what the stand looks like afterwards and know that logging doesn't necessarily equate to, to forest loss here in the Black Hills. Um, in, qu- in fact, it's quite the opposite. And when we've seen the mountain pine beetle epidemic, run through. Uh, we, 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 sponsor, we sponsored flights every year during the epidemic and, and went up over the hills and talked about forest management and took pictures of what we were seeing. And um, during that time, it was very obvious. You'd fly over the Black Hills and, and you could find areas of, of devastation from the mountain pine beetle uh, punctuated with green acres in, in, in the middle of it all. And th- those were areas that had been harvested through a timber sale. And th- those prescriptions were designed to not let the mountain pine beetle operate there, operate in there, and they were very successful. There's been a number of publications, peer-reviewed publications, that have looked at those efforts here in the Black Hills, and and um, the, the successes are are um, just uh, unequivocal. There's there's a lot to be said for the work that we've done here in the Black Hills. Um, Timber harvest has not always um, had the same image. And when, when you look back to the 50s or, or early 60s, um, th- things may not have been as environmentally sound at that time, depending on where you were in the country. And
0: Which, and that's not just with the timber industry as well. I mean, that's... All over the board as well. When you go back as as far, it's not quite as thought out in a lot of different places. You're exactly right. We, you know, we as a society have, have learned a lot over the last hundred years,
1: and forest management and timber harvest is, is certainly not immune to having learned a lot of lessons. And we've learned we've learned how to do those practices and and to implement timber harvest in a much more environmentally friendly manner and and make it much more sustainable f- for the Black Hills and, and other forests alike.
0: Yeah, totally. All right, we're going to take a quick breather and then when we come back we're going to talk about how sustainable forests help our communities. Excellent. Hey guys and gals, it's Brett Mattis, the host of the Midwest Marketing Podcast. I need you to do me a favor really really quick. I promise you it won't take long. However you're listening to this here podcast, Go on to iTunes, Stitcher, maybe you're just on our website, whatever it is. Go give us a five-star rating. See those stars? There's going to be five of them. Just go to the one furthest on the right-hand side. Click that one. Maybe write a few quick nice words about us. Unless you don't like us very much, then don't write anything at all. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Let's get back to listening. All right, so we're back. And like I said before the break, we're going to talk about how having sustainable forests kind of helps our communities. Can you talk about how that all fits together?
1: Absolutely. And, and that's really the, what I talked about earlier as far as what the Black Hills Forest Resource Association really advocates for is uh, not only sustainable forests, but, but also sustainable communities. And you think back to those three circles, the, the social, economic, and environmental circles that... That really overlap to, to create sustainability. That that same principle applies to the communities, and for, for the most part, we can look at economic and social. And here in the Black Hills, uh, you, you can't you can't look at the communities and, and not look at tourism. T- tourism is a major driver of, of our community economies. Um, uh, there was a report that came out earlier this year that that in two thousand eighteen, there was about one point six billion dollars spent. Uh, by By tourists here in the Black Hills and badlands area
0: that 's a baffling number
1: that 's a lot of money
0: that 's a lot of money
1: um, and and so again you, you look at those numbers you, you look at the road any time during the summer and there 's an rV or or a truck or a camper from out of state or out of the area and and it 's very clear that the tourism is a big part of of our communities yeah
0: I always told my mom that I wanted to live in a place where people go on vacation. And then I regret that when June hits every year and it's like, oh, it's just full of people. But that's also a good thing as well.
1: It just requires a little added patience. Yes.
0: Yeah. Patience is huge. <laughs>
1: um, and, and, and along with that tourism, you know, recreation plays a key role in our communities. And that, that's year round. We, we have snowmobiling in the Black Hills. We have mountain biking in the summer. Um, there's a lot of recreation opportunities. And it's another driving part of, of our local economies. And, and the other driving part is, is we look at the forest products companies themselves. And here in the Black Hills, um, not only are they really the tool to, to do that forest management I was talking about to help sustain the forests, but they're, they're also uh, a major source of economic input to the, to the communities. And in the Black Hills, the, the forest products companies here directly employ about 1,400 individuals, and those 1,400 con- positions contribute back about $120 million in, in salaries and in contractor payments to our local communities. Um, we're certainly not the biggest forest industry in, in the nation, far, far from it, but those those jobs and those salaries mean a lot to our local communities. When, when you look at the populations and demographics, it, it's a major player here. And and of course, all of this uh, overlaps with that circle of environment. And, and in our case, we're really talking about the forest and if, if we didn't have the, the forest that we do, uh, all of these would be impacted. Um, you may not lose in t- tourism entirely, but folks come here because it's beautiful and, and, and Mount Rushmore too, but uh, certainly the forests play play a role in, in folks wanting to come here. And if we didn't have the, the green trees and forests that, that we have now, uh, it'd be pretty easier for folks to make the extra couple hours over to the Bighorns or, or Colorado or any other part of the Rockies.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, obviously Mount Rushmore is a big pull, but that's a hour out of your whole vacation at best where, I mean, otherwise you're camping amongst the Ponderosa pines and you're hiking through the forest and you're, I mean, you're spending more time in the forest than you are at any other attraction. I guess you could consider the forest an attraction in itself.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So going back to actually the, the timber industry type stuff, can you touch on Gifford Pinchot and the, how the first timber, like regulated timber sale was here?
1: It was. Uh, yeah. That yeah.
0: blew my mind when you told me that.
1: Yeah. And so it was aptly named case number one. Um, but uh, as I mentioned before, the timber, timber industry has not always been uh, quite as environmentally sensitive as, as we are now. And uh, there's been a lot of learning that, that's taken place over time, uh, but but part of that time was uh, in the late 1800s. And during that time, there was what's called free use here, here in the Black Hills and, and across the West. And um, here in the Black Hills, we had mining being developed at that same time. And you put those two together and there was a lot of forest clearing going on with without any real scientific direction driving it. The, the, the only driver was mine timbers and, and the need for those timbers to, to keep building the mines. That, that was resulting in, in genuine forest loss here in the Black Hills. And um, as part of that loss really across the West, we saw the forest reserves created. And those forest reserves at, at the time, functioned a lot like our wilderness does today, where, where you couldn't go in and, and do uh, any type of use in those forests. Um, obviously, that, that created a, a genuine uproar, including the Black Hills area. Uh, some, some some local uh, outlets, uh, I think it was the Custer Chronicle at the, at the time, or the uh, Custer uh, forget the name of the publication at, at that time. But well, the
0: Chronicles now, I'm not sure what it was. Yes, I, that, that's why. I, I, out of Custer. Paper Out of Custer. Out of
1: Custer um, but, but called it one of the most uh, egregious uh, atrocities committed towards civilization and mankind of all time. Um, there, there was a lot of political pushback from, from the West on that. And. Um, as such, you saw the reserves. Change. Was that a,
0: was that a Teddy Roosevelt thing? Did he in, incorporate that or start no, that? No, that,
1: that was that was before Roosevelt. That was before. The, yeah, okay. yeah, we're, we're talking late eighteen hundreds here. Okay. And um, but but out of that, you, you had the Organic Act, and that really that really created the national forests as we know them today, uh, with with a multiple use concept to them, and the, the, the national forests were really created with, with two. To driving components, and that was one to secure uh, long-term and, and abundant supplies of, of clean water, and also long-term supplies of, of timber. As, as part of that, um, th- they were needing really a way to, to to look at how to do this for the long term and sustainably. And, and Gifford Pinchot was certainly the most educated forester here in in the, in the United States, uh, formally educated out out of uh, out of the out of Europe. And he brought along a lot of the scientific ideas and and practices that they'd been using for some time now. And as he was looking across the West, he he was spending a lot of time in the Black Hills and and really concluded that that if there was going to be a place that we could talk about sustainable forest management and make an example for sustainable forest management, it would be in the Black Hills. And and out of that was born case number one, the very first ever federal timber sale. And it was right here in the black hills a, a contract between the federal government and, and Homestake mine and that was in 1899 and that that's what really started our long legacy of forest management here in the black hills that that's been scientifically driven since and and we've only refined it over time
0: that's so cool that we are case number one and now going back to something that you said um for people that don't know wilderness well there's essentially i guess when you think wilderness i guess you think two different things a lot of people i like to refer to it as capital w wilderness and lowercase w wilderness so i mean the lowercase w wilderness is just like a wild place which a lot of people consider the whole black hills wilderness because it's like wild but then there's capital w which is federally designated wilderness areas and we have one here in the black hills right now which is the black elk wilderness area and they're obviously all over the west um, as well and i wanted to know your take on federally designated wilderness as i mean you can't go in there you can't drive motor vehicles and so if i mean a lot of down trees you have to go in and you can't use chainsaws legally correct C- mostly
1: correct yeah mostly and that, 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 correct. that's a, a good distinction on the term wilderness and and yes you're, you're exactly right um, that you have designated lands under the wilderness act and that that's what it really what I was referring to a, a good clarification there and and in the black elk wilderness, like any other wilderness that there's a lot of restrictions that apply for, for better or worse whatever your viewpoint is i
0: have I, I went into the black elk I was hunting I think I was just hunting deer and i I went into the black elk and uh on the sign it said like, no motor vehicles, no motorized equipment. And then on the bottom, it said no hang gliders. And I was like, that's a weird place to you, draw the line. But
1: you can't even operate you know, a, a bicycle. No, nothing mechanical. It's in, in pretty the much
0: horses and, and hikers or people. It, I mean, either you're on a horse, you're on livestock, or you're on your own two feet.
1: Exactly. And, and so you you asked a very direct question on, on my opinion of, yeah, of wilderness. Just coming from and, your background. And, and so this would be my personal opinion. Yep. Um, and, and it's that. Wilderness plays a, a, a key role in, in the management of our lands. Um, that being said, it, it's not appropriate everywhere. And I look at some of the high mountain peaks in, in Colorado and, and Wyoming, um, where you don't have those disturbance-driven ecosystems. And, and you have some very fragile systems and biology that, that certainly warrants a, a high degree of protection. And I think wilderness could be aptly suited for, for a lot of those areas. Here in the Black Hills, when when you have a disturbance-driven ecosystem like we do, uh, you you get some less-than-desirable effects with it. And um, in the Black Hills, we've seen them. You mentioned you were up in the Black Elk Wilderness, and and if you've been up there any time in the last few years, uh, you may have noticed that most of it is dead.
0: And yeah, a large chunk and lots of, I mean, across trails, hiking trails, horseback riding trails. I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of down timber. There's no doubt about that.
1: Exactly, exactly. And that, that's an unfortunate side effect of, of wilderness in, well, I'll just say ponderosa pine systems. And when, when you can't go in and do forest management to, to mimic those natural disturbances, nature will manage it. Um, We just may not like the effect that nature comes up with on on the way that she manages that. And and, uh, we've seen it play out across the West. Black elk is no different. And instead of being able to go in and and decide which trees stay and which trees go, uh, most of them go. But but they just fall over on on the landscape there. Um, If anything, it's provided a... a, uh, a nice comparison for what happens when you don't manage the the forest here in the Black Hills.
0: Yeah, which I think the Wilderness Act, that was 64, I believe, was when the Wilderness Act, and it kind of came to light as, I mean, to protect these pristine places, but then you say, like with the Black again there's like the Frank Church, I think, is the largest contiguous wilderness, and that's in Idaho. It's ginormous. I don't remember the exact size of it but it's huge and it's kind of like you're saying that very delicate ecosystem that can manage itself better than maybe us here with the black elk
1: and and you're exactly right so think about 1964 and and a lot of what i referenced earlier that that was a time when forest management may not have been occurring in the most environmentally sensitive manner and and there was a lot of public outcry about that and and rightfully so to be honest Things have changed and and what we've learned has changed a lot since then um, At that time the only real losses that you were seeing were from logging And there was a a mindset that if you reserve that if you put it to the side, it will stay the same forever But the the fascinating thing about trees is that they don't stay the same. They grow every year. They grow every day and more trees grow some trees die But setting them aside and thinking that they will stay the same forever just is a flawed concept. And um, again, like I say, wilderness has its pros in certain places. Um, Other places you get some and less than desirable side effects.
0: Yeah. So like you said, I mean, a lot of our views have changed since 1964 or whenever. Do you think it would ever be revisited? Or is it kind of just in perpetuity that it's going to last? Like, Do you think there's ever a point down the road where they're going to be like, maybe we should look at our wilderness structure? And then if they did, what would happen with it? But boy, I'd that's just, a big question. That's I know. a huge
1: <laughs> question. I, I would just be speculating. You'd be better suited to uh, be asking any one of our congressional representatives. Um, or members of Congress. And uh, it, since wilderness is, is congressionally designated, if, if anything ever changed, it would certainly be up to them. Um, I'm not sure much needs to change as far as the Wilderness Act goes. Um, there, there's a lot of wilderness across the West, especially as you look at states like Colorado and Wyoming, that they have a significant portion of their forests that are designated as wilderness. Um, we don't have that here in the Black Hills, and, and I really do believe that's that's largely a uh because we, we've been managing our forests and um, there just isn't a lot of uh, desire for additional wilderness, you know, capital W wilderness here in the Black Hills.
0: Yeah, I agree. So moving on a little bit here, um, impacts that wildfire and pine beetles have had um, on our Black Hills forest. I know we touched on a little bit with kind of the effects of what's happened in the black elk, but how outside of the black elk, kind of what's going on with the pine beetles and, and wildfires.
1: Sure. Well, most obviously they killed a bunch of trees, Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and some places they, they killed quite a few trees in, in all in one place. Other places, uh, they, they just killed a, a tree here and there, but, um, but the effects have, have largely been the same, just different intensities across the forest, and, and those really range um, anywhere from the trees falling across fences, falling across roads and trails, uh, most folks who spend any time in the woods will, will tell you that they often have a, a chainsaw or, or some type of, of saw on the back of their ATV or OHV. Um, there's It's been a, a major concern for the counties as far as emergency response, both medical and fire and, and encountering trees across roads as, as they go to respond to incidents. Um, you, you also have seen uh, a influx of noxious weeds in the areas where you've had the mountain pine beetle mortality. Uh, we won't go into ecology and noxious weeds and, and yeah. all of that, but but basically w- whenever you open up that forest canopy, you have a potential for, for noxious weeds. And where you've had the mountain pine beetle mortality, you don't have any funding from other management activities to help control those weeds. Um, certainly the wilderness falls in that, into that category, but, but even other lands where you just didn't have the forest management occurring, but you had the mountain pine beetle, you're seeing a flush of noxious weeds behind it. Canada thistle has, has been. I was just going to ask what's the big one. Yeah, Canada thistle has been extremely prevalent the last few years. Um, but, but you also just have a changed experience for, for everyone who, who uses the forest for recreation or work. Um, there are areas that you can go through, and, and just from the main roads, you, you can see a change in, in the forest. Uh, some places may not have a lot of live trees left but other places may still have a lot of live trees but you're seeing the dead fall and it and it may not be as aesthetically pleasing to a lot of, to, to other folks especially visitors
0: um oh, well no one yeah no one wants to see it like if you had a magic wand you'd want to hold all the trees nice and beautiful and then you wouldn't want any of that natural you know Process going on where they there is deadfall.
1: Yeah, and we can add some sparkle to them as well. While we're at it, yes. Um, <laughs> but um, but but the other question that a lot of folks really ask is, well, what does this do for the folks who who rely on the forest? And and namely, looking at, at forest products companies. You know, there's um, obviously there's been some concern about having this many trees killed by mountain pine beetles. What, what that's done to, to forest management and what forest management is going to look like in the future here in the Black Hills. And one of the unique things about this epidemic is that it was so long running. And we had a mountain beetle epidemic for 20 years. And when you look at spreading those acres across 20 years, um, there wasn't a huge impact uh, suddenly on the Black Hills. And like I said earlier, forests, the funny thing about them is naturally they some trees live and some trees die and some trees grow. And uh, we, we've seen that same process here in the Black Hills. Uh, we, we've seen a few more trees die than normal, that, that, that's for sure. Um, but, but the trees that are still here have com- continued to grow during that time. And, and we've seen the trees that were suppressed under the, the canopy of, the, of trees that died. We've seen those starting to release and, and grow more. And just like the, the user experience has changed, forest management will likely look a little different in the coming years as we look at trying to move the forest conditions closer to what they should be for for a mix of everything, wildlife and forest health and and reducing the threats of wildfires and and mountain pine beetles. Um, The one thing we do know is that looking again at at those surveys that have been done for for a long time now, for over 100 years here in the Black Hills, we, we have some really good information from about the last 20 years from those surveys, and th- that tells us that w- any impacts that we've had to the, the number of trees or the volume of trees that we have here in the Black Hills have have really been negligible, um, and that's important on a, on a number of levels. One, it tells us that we still have a forest condition that requires a lot of forest management. But but two, it tells us how resilient this forest really is, and we we can have a twenty-year mountain pine beetle epidemic, and we can come out of that in really a pretty good shape. If we had done nothing and let the epidemic run across the entire forest, we may be having a much different conversation today. But but thankfully, uh, Forest Service and the states of South Dakota and Wyoming and the counties, um, everybody worked together to address that situation and to put meaningful forest management on the ground where, where it made the most sense and. That forest management was really able to reduce the scale and intensity of, of the mountain pine beetle epidemic and keep the forest that we have here today Yeah,
0: which is awesome. So if some guy is uh you get caught in an elevator with some guy and he's like Whose job is it? It seems like it's your job because it's like your job to manage the forest whose job is it to manage the forest?
1: well, that's a good question and A lot of people in the community would look to the Forest Service. They are certainly the largest landowner. They they own 1.2 million acres here in the Black Hills. Almost three quarters of of the land of the forested area here in the Black Hills belongs to the Forest Service. Um, Certainly, they they have a responsibility to manage the forest. There's a lot of private ownerships. Um, They they have taken on a responsibility to manage the forest as well. When you own land in the Black Hills, you, you are assuming that responsibility. But... But it's bigger than that. It's bigger than just who owns the land. It's it's everyone, including the public. It's including people who live right downtown here in Rapid City. We, we all have a role in, in managing the forests here in the Black Hills. And it, that, that role changes from person to person. It may change from year to year. But uh, we all have to really work together to, to keep the management going in the Black Hills and, and to keep our forests and communities sustainable.
0: Yeah, I agree. All right, so as we kind of circle around here and wrap it up a little bit we talked about a lot how we're constantly learning about um, forest management and everything like this and it doesn't need to be forest related your answer can be anything but there's things where it's like we looked back and we're like man how did we not see that was wrong is there something that you could see like that we're doing right now that in 30 years we're like man that was a mistake i can't believe we did that and it doesn't need to be related to the forest to let you think on it since that's a little bit of a thinker i think mine has got to be the screens thing like that we just sit at screens all the time i think one day we're going to look at that and we're like man that was we should have not spent so much time on the screens but right now it's the way of the world is there anything that you think that we could possibly do and that might not be quite right
1: well, I'm going to have to stick with forestry. That's that fine one. with me. Um, forestry for 200, please. Um, <laughs> and and absolutely. Right right now, we're we're two years after post end of the mountain pine beetle epidemic. Um, we've seen uh, some interest f- uh, locally and across the state on keeping our efforts going. Uh, South Dakota legislature passed a resolution last year, uh, really promoting continued forest management and. Mountain pine beetle, like I said, it, it's, it's something that's natural. It's been here forever. It will always be here and, and it's that choice in the scale that we have epidemics is where um, We can really be learning right now And the, the idea that we don't have an epidemic until we have dead trees is, is, is absolutely wrong And we, we have an epidemic that, that, that's starting now and it's an epidemic of trees Um, Our our forests remain at risk of mountain pine beetles. Uh, There was an article in the Rapid City Journal back in 1963 that said, aptly titled, We Were Warned on Beetles. And I I think you could reprint that same article today, and it would hold true. You could change some of the the numbers and names and faces, um, but but all the facts remain the same, is that we've had mountain pine beetle epidemics throughout time. The last one we had to this extent was in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, that, that decimated a, a good portion of the forest. We've had other epidemics since then, and, and the epidemics have grown larger and, and more severe in, in their impacts as the forests have grown more dense. We, we haven't reduced the density of our forests enough to reduce the threat of another mountain pine beetle epidemic. And, and it's, it's not a matter of if, it's, it's when. And I, I would say we, we have been warned on beetles now, and the choices that we're making today set us up for what the next epidemic will look like. And it can be an epidemic of a couple 10,000 acres, or it can be an epidemic of hundreds of thousands of acres. We, we have that choice, and, and we've known for over 100 years on how to control mountain pine beetles and, and reduce the impacts in our forests. And um, without going into mountain pine beetles 201 it it, it's really just thinning the forest and keeping them at at lower densities and we we can learn that lesson this time we really can and and hopefully prevent having these same discussions 15 20 years from now
0: exactly very interesting speaking of writing that holds up from a long time ago have you had any of aldo leopold's stuff at all certainly yeah, yeah the yeah. sand county almanac mm-hmm. i'm trying to get uh todd as a graphic designer and i'm trying to get him to read it but since it says almanac in the title he won't do it <laughs> <laughs> but aldo leopold is like i mean he wrote his stuff in the early 40s and then i, got, I think he got published in 47 i mean it's like it you read it now and it's like it's just so holds true and he has a quote I'm going to butcher this quote and it's not going to be spot on but I'm going to try to get the general theme of it and it's something along the lines of with every stroke of his axe a man it's like he knows he's putting his signature on the land and it's like what kind of signature do you want to put on the land do you want to put one where it's like we're doing the right thing and we're making our signature on the land by thinning out the forest and preventing mountain pine beetles from having that ridiculous ep- epidemic or is it going to be the wrong kind of signature I think that's a Quote that always resonates with me when we talk about forest management is like, are you doing it the right way or the wrong way?
1: Absolutely, and and I, th- I think he uses the term conservationist.
0: Oh yes, he pr- that would make and, sense, and, right? And, and
1: that that's a that's a very appropriate term because a conservationist tries to do the right thing on the land for, for the long term, and looks at the right thing as not necessarily just stepping back and and observing, but but there are actions that are necessary to. leave the land in in the way that you want it and here in the black hills it's really forest management is what we're talking about in in, in all flavors uh, to to leave the land in, in the state that we want it with lots of green trees and healthy forests and healthy wildlife
0: yeah i agree so i guess do you have anything that we didn't touch on that you'd like to bring up before we just shut the machine down here and and get on with our day
1: No, I I appreciate the opportunity to come in and and talk about forest management in the Black Hills, uh, talk about our communities and and, and how they overlap so much. Uh, We we all see the log trucks. We see the forest management happening from time to time. but But it's important to understand that it plays a very significant role. Uh, both in maintaining our forests and maintaining our communities.
0: Yeah, well, hey, thanks. We appreciate you coming on. I think people will definitely learn a lot uh, from this thing. It's super interesting. I find all this stuff just fascinating. So thanks for coming on and talking to us, and thanks for listening, guys. Thank you.